Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. How did a college dropout from a tiny town in Missouri, fired several times from jobs at radio stations, grow up to win five Marconi Awards for excellence in the medium, and to rescue the AM radio band itself, to have one American president carry his bags into the Lincoln bedroom, and another award him the Medal of Freedom at the State of the Union. It's the amazing life story of radio's greatest of all time, Rush Limbaugh, next. So I look at this, any, any, any chance to do the show, I'm going to take it. If I wake up and realize I'm still alive and thank God for it, then the next thing I'm going to, okay, can I go to work today? Because if I can, I need to get as many in uh, as, uh, as possible. Because this is one of my primary loves in life. And you in the audience are the reason that this love of my life has been so extraordinarily happy and successful. Would not have happened without, without you. And so there is a desire to be here every day. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody enjoying today's time travel adventure via our YouTube and Rumble channels. Speaking of Rumble, you can read my columns in the Washington Times to get an idea of my analysis of current events in light of what I've learned from history. And the most recent piece does cover the time I spent on both the Rush Limbaugh show and launching Fox News Channel, with the parallels I see to Upstart Rumble's efforts to take on YouTube. The piece is titled, All Americans Should Join Rumble's Free Speech Fight. As it happens, free speech was very important to the subject of today's book. That's Rush Limbaugh, my longtime boss, and also the even longer time boss of today's guest, my friend and colleague, James Golden, who those of you who did listen to Rush's show know as Bo Snurdly, the call screener, official Obama criticizer. He wore many hats over the years for the EIB network. We're so glad to welcome him aboard the time machine this week. The book is Rush on the Radio, a tribute from his sidekick for 30 years. It's an intimate portrait of someone who strove for excellence every day. Even as Rush battled terminal lung cancer, he would always put on the best show he could. James Golden is a longtime radio producer, call screener, and the afternoon host on 77 WABC in New York City. You can catch him there at 4 to 5 p.m. weekdays and 8 to 10 a.m. on Saturday mornings. And you can find his show via the podcasts at his website. You can also listen to his iHeartRadio series. That's called Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the Golden EIB microphone. Visit him at jamesgolden.com or you can find him on social media at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn where you can find me as well. All right, now that it's 12.06 Eastern time, and we're all hearing the familiar deep bass drumbeat of the pretenders my city was gone, let's join James Golden to listen to Rush on the Radio.
And we are joined now by James Golden, the man with the golden voice. He's here to chat with us about his book, Rush on the Radio, a tribute from his sidekick for 30 years. James, you've welcomed me into your home, me and my wife, and so it's so great to be able to welcome you here onto my little show. Thanks so much for making the time to chat with me. You're welcome, number one. Of course, I would. this is just an honor for me. When are you coming back, number two? <laughs> and my niece and my nephew here, and they, my niece is like an amazing chef, so you need to come down. Oh, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> We'll share. We'll share. You have my cookbook, right? Uh, to send yeah, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw them helping you there, helping you with the tech stuff. So I, that's what I assume anyway, to get this together. Yeah, and my do nephew. It. And, yes. Yeah. And I know he's good with video games, right? So there you go. But you're mentioning family right off the top. And that brings me right to my first question. And that is, I appreciate you writing this book but I know this hasn't been an easy year for you. Not only did Rush pass away, your beloved mother passed away and you were you were a son that I admired because I always tried to be a good son. You come to New York, you'd make sure you went and visited her. You always put her first. You always respected and loved your mother. So you lose her, you lose Rush. And then you had your own private battle with cancer that you revealed to the world here for the first time in this book. And yet you said, among all that, with, with so many excuses you could have had there, reasons, not excuses, to not write this book, and yet you decide, hey, I'm going to write this book because I want to get this first draft of history down. When you were so overwhelmed with grief, worried about your own mortality, why write this book now? What inspired you to do it and kept you at it? Rush, Dean, you know, you, you, Dean, you of, of everybody that has um, um, interviewed me since this book has come out, you have the unique position of that. I don't have to explain stuff to you that you know, because you have the same feelings on this. I'm assuming that we worked for this man. We knew who he was. We knew what a great human being he was. We knew what a nice guy he was. We knew what a generous man he was. We knew, we knew what it was like to work for somebody that just wanted you to be your best and wanted as a result of you being your best, being able to contribute and make his show the best. And you know what a privilege it was to work with, with him. And, and, and you also know how many of the attacks leveled against him for decades have just been um, from people that never listened, never cared. So I wanted to take, a, and, and I've said all along that there are other people on our staff that could have written this book because we all feel the same way. We loved him. It went beyond uh, a working relationship with a boss. We love this man. And we need to be the ones that are out there making sure that as his history is being written, that it is the proper history and not written by some political operative with an agenda who didn't know him at all and only cares about smearing his name. It's so true because I, I felt when I saw you wrote this book and when he passed and I started writing these op-eds in the Washington Times, I said, I feel funny about it because for 25, 30 years, we protected <laughs> Russia's privacy with our silence. If people asked right. us anything, if we got a call from the press, it was, you know, the, we would not ever entertain speaking to them. So with that ingrained in us now here, we defend rush after he's gone by speaking out about him and saying something that you heard him say a million times when he would tell 
tell a story about meeting a Stan Musil, or he'd meet somebody that he say they were exactly what you'd want them to be. He was just what you'd want, or she was just what you'd expect. And that's how Russ was. And for me, you go out in the world, right? And you meet somebody who works for a politician, a Kamala, for an Oprah, for a oh. Michael Moore. And they'll, they'll just say, oh my gosh, you're there, you're young, you're 20. When we were on the Rush TV show together, they'll tell you this horror story. And then they'll say, so what's Rush like? And it's, you're supposed to give back, right? It's, it's supposed to be reciprocal. And we would say, <laughs> we have nothing like that. There's no, you can't look at him. There's no, he fired somebody for whatever. There was none of that with Rush. And you share that real story here. And in fact, I'll, I'm trying not to just speak my own mind here and tell my own stories. It's about your book, but you include no, no. In there. What I what I want, Dean. The reason that this interview is so very important to me is because we were there together, right? Even though we were working in different locations. So I want you to speak your own mind. I don't want it to just be, well, this is what James saying. It could be just to sell a book. You were there. This is an important interview because like me, you experienced Rush for decades. You knew what it was like working there. You knew what kind of a human being he was. You knew exactly what the rest of the staff, because we all talk together. We all know each other. So no, please speak your own mind with this too. Well, thank you, because I sometimes people say, hey, you, you're talking too much. I want to get my stuff out. And I struggled to decide, what is this interview going to be? And I decided there's no reason to be defensive about it. Rusta never needed us to defend him before. But now when he can't speak for himself, that that's part of it, is just to get the real legacy down, tell people who he was. People could go out and say, well, hey, I want to write a book that's terrible, a tell-all. There can never be a tell-all about Rush because... As I tell people, if you heard him on the radio, you met him. You know who he was like. He said himself right. with all these sexual harassment, horrible things like a Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and whoever else. He said, I must be the most boring guy, you know, because I there was never anything. He never he never said a thing or did a thing. And if he did think he did, he did this once with my wife, Kathy. And you've, you've given me the green light here to tell a story. We were at Brett Winterbull's going away party, radio host, Rush guest host, previously a call screener. And Rush is giving a speech for Brett. And Rush says, and by the way, Brett, none of us ever really liked you. And Kathy, he just happened to be standing by, right behind my wife, Kathy Rush. And she was scandalized, right? And he goes, no, no, she, I'm kidding. You don't know me well enough to know I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We love Brett, everything. And he, James, not only did he say that right then, he came back to her three, four times during the night, brought her a drink. I just want you to know I was kidding. I would never say something like that, mean like that. We love Brett. And finally, by the fourth or fifth time, I said, Rush, you, you can't let her decide your happiness. Give her the power to control your happiness. Because this was a few years after Rush had gone through rehab, and that was one of his key lessons. And he says to me, a little, little rehab 101, huh? And he gives me a fist bump. And this is way before COVID, so no one's doing fist bumps. And I said to him, you're Rush Limbaugh. You shouldn't be fist bumping. What is this? Come on. <laughs> and so what? <laughs> So many things just in that one little story about the guy. First of all, this is a party, right. by the way, he's paying for at Patsy's in the Sinatra room. So he's he's just 
somebody you would love to work for. I wish everyone could work for someone like that. And by the way, this is not a cult. This is not you're forced to believe anything. There was never a litmus test. We had a diverse staff and not just diverse in opinion, which is the one that always mattered to Rush, but all three sexes, as Rush used to say back in the old days, right? Right. That's the man you meet here in Rush on the radio. And I'm so glad that you introduced them to everybody. Well, I'm so glad that you're backing up everything that I say, because this is who we were, you know? I mean, and that's why the attacks, the continued attacks from the left, to me, took on a level of vileness that are almost unprecedented because there wasn't a basis of truth. In fact, I remember, Dean, when he it was announced that he was with the um, ownership team trying to buy the L.A. Rams. And all of a sudden, the most vicious quotes, supposedly that he said, came out. Now, he never said any of that crap. It was somebody sitting at their desk that made up something truly horrifically ugly. And rather than fact check it, these people in some in some of the mainstream media ran with it as if it were true. And it is just a disgrace that because it was rushed and, and it could be any other conservative they don't like, there's no, there is no semblance of fairness at all or even good journalism when it comes to accepting some of the criticisms as true when there were absolutely flat out lies. I'm glad you brought up that purchase of the Rams and those fake quotes because for you, I'm watching the on the Zoom here. And so I'm saying to myself, okay, I I can see you and I hear all these things that Rush is this bigot and he's this racist. And yet to my keen eye, you appear to have a slight ethnic quality about you, James. I, I don't think you're you're from Norway, right? You're you're from a different country. <laughs> I'm from America. You're right. I'm from yeah, America. and that's the key. And and yet Rush never never ever leaned on that as a token. He didn't do that nope. thing where, well, I have black friends, whatever. And during the Rams was the one time in all those years, and I, I started in 95, I had a stint where I worked for Dick Morris, I worked for Fox News for a few years, but at the website now it's been 21 years. So there was never a time except this one where you, I think, demanded to be heard and said, do you really think, people out there, that if he was saying this stuff about Martin Luther King Jr., I would be sitting here? And I would I would let him say that. I, and so I felt like that was the only time. And I wondered, what was it like for you to watch and to hear all these things said about this man? Because you're somebody who will throw down and you had to watch Rush absorb those punches and not be able to strike back on behalf of your friend when you knew people were lying about him. How was that for you? And how did that play here into writing Rush on the radio so you could finally have your say? Difficult. It was really difficult because you're right. I wanted to go after every single one of these attackers um, and just take them on individually. But that wasn't what Rush wanted. Rush was just like, ignore these haters and let's just do what we do. Um, I think, though, and I don't think it was a mistake for him because I think it gave him peace of mind that he would just ignore these things and not let them escalate and beyond what they were. But that one was particularly egregious to me because the remarks that were supposedly made by him were so hurtful and so bigoted and so slanderous. And the fact that these people that supposedly are reporters, 
these people that supposedly are the creme de la creme in American journalism wouldn't even bother to check it before they ran with it. To me, that's the real story. The real story isn't that some idiot can sit behind um, uh, um, uh, uh, on a computer screen and make up things out of their own head, which by the way, should show you where the real racism and bigotry lies inside their own beings. But the fact that people that are supposedly committed to bringing the truth before the American people and the world that get paid to do it wouldn't bother to follow the basic tenets of journalism that they were supposed to learn in, in Journalism 101, which is to find the cooperation for these sort of things and don't print things that uh, of this nature that could be slanderous or maliciously slanderous unless you have proof that they were actually said. Our journalism system in America is so corrupt, just like the political system. And the fact that you can say these things and target a Rush Limbaugh or a Donald Trump or any other conservative and have a willing press go along with it speaks volumes about the state of the American press and how utterly corrupt they have become. It's one reason I tried to do this show. And that's another great thing about Rush. He let all of us pursue things we wanted to do on the side and encouraged us. Uh, our late coworker and friend, H.R. Kit Carson, he was the one who said that at one point, may have been at Rush's wedding and said, he encouraged everybody. He was so positive. And I said, I want to do this show like Brian Lamb. Rush said, no offense to you. I can't do it like you do it. But I just want to be neutral. I want people to watch and I'm going to be on the side of the facts. And he really tried to do that. That was his watchword. He always said, it's no benefit to me to lie about anything. And if somebody had a fake quote, he was on with your friend, the late Alan Combs once, and you mentioned Alan in the book here. And one of my best friends was Alan's longtime producer as well. And Rush went on that show during that whole phony soldiers made up scandal. And he said, Alan, and people were on the right, were going after Alan. And he said, Alan, I have a website. You have a website. People can go there and see what we say. If you're gonna, if you're gonna take after us, do it on something we actually said. And that was something that I know was hard for for all of us to hear because also people that know you and this is something that Ali who's still with us has been with us for about 20 years was with us back at Fox now as the producer of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show and when we brought her on board and I showed her the videos of Rush and the books she sat in my living room and fell asleep with my cat in her lap and introducing her to Rush I said there's going to be people who you think are your friends that know you and they're going to believe the media more than they believe you and you're going to be hurt because you'll say you know me why why would you believe some gloria allred or somebody whoever over me wouldn't you wouldn't you question them and say wait my friend ali's working there my friend dean is working there my friend james is working there that guy can't be what everybody says about him all this negative stuff so right. that that's something that is so true and when you read this book you read rush on the radio you get that out of it you say he was just what you'd want him to be, regardless of the politics, regardless of conservatives, because frankly, they want to tell you a lot of times too, back in the day that, you know, what Russia's doing wrong, you should do this, you should do that. But just as a person, he was a guy that if you were interested in something, he was interested in it. And he would, he was so generous. He, it reminded me of Della Reese. She said about Red Fox that he was so generous. And there's many stories Pat Morita tells, for instance, about incredible generosity and it reminded me of Rush. She said, Red was the kind of guy, if you needed help, 
and he didn't even know you, he'd reach in his pocket and whatever he pulled out, he'd give you. And you have a you have a great story about that, by the way, that I know you've told before. That's really what it was. And politics aside, the commie makeup babe back in the days of the TV show, he gave a waitress the headline is two thousand dollar tip. He did that twice, so four thousand dollars. She thought it was great to go to the press and say she gave it to Planned Parenthood or whoever she gave it to. Rush didn't care. That wasn't the point. You know, the money was yours. He loved to give. He was a big Santa Claus. And to all these charities, leukemia doesn't care if you're black, white, conservative, liberal, independent, reform party. He gave what over, I think over $350 million he raised. And also again, out of his own pocket, not just his time for all of these charities. That has to be part of the story of Rush Limbaugh's career and life. And it's certainly part of the story here in Rush on the Radio. Yeah, because it was. And you make a point that I've been making, you know, look at look at the work that he and Catherine did to uh, make sure that uh, first responders, the fallen first responders, families were taken care of with their mortgages paid off for their houses. Right now, I mean, can you imagine, Dean, a worse situation? You lose one of your parents or you lose your spouse. And they're taken from you in the line of duty, be it military or being at a first responder at a government agency. And in the midst of your grief, here you are having to worry about how am I going to pay this mortgage? How am I going to do this? And in swoops, these people tunnel the towers or whoever they may be. And they say, hey, this is not a concern anymore. Your house is paid for your or your college, your kid's college education is paid for however it works. It will never assuage the loss, but I tell you what, it brings peace of mind on a level that most people cannot experience in that. And that's who these, that's the legacy of Rush, um, doing things like that. These things are apolitical. They have, there's nothing they could be, and, and no one's asking them, well, are you a conservative? Are you a liberal? No. The same way as you mentioned, and I'm glad you mentioned this, that our staff, you know, there was never a political litmus test for anybody on the staff. No. You know, we don't know. Some of our colleagues could be socialists for all we know. We don't know if they kept it to themselves because that wasn't what it was, a, a qualification for working there. The qualification for working with Rush was in whatever area your skill was needed, are you the best and can you deliver the best to the show every day? It's really simple. It's so true. And I'm glad you brought that up because it really is a fact in fact, not only were all of us there so long, I'm ticking off numbers, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, 30 plus years. I don't even know if anybody ever was fired. And I was wondering, because you were on with our friend, uh, WMAL's Derek Hunter, number one in, in Baltimore, I heard you say oh, in, yeah. in, in an interview. Yeah, with Winsome Sears, who was a fantastic interview. But he said... In an interview with you, he said, you know, my friend Dean works there with you at Russia. My friend Keith, could you fire them, please? And you got a big laugh. Uh, he got a big laugh out of you, rather. And it made me think as I was getting ready for this interview, I don't know that anyone was ever fired. I don't know that there was a mechanism to get somebody fired. I, I mean, I don't even know if somebody quit in the sense that they decided I can't take it anymore. I am I am out of here. People may have left the show. They may have decided or in the very early days when there were many snurdlies rolling across the landscape. You're the last snurdly standing of that of that nickname group. But 
was there? Do you recall somebody that on the staff and our core group? Or, or I, would that was call, just... I would call one person, and it wouldn't be fair for me to name their name, that was a bit of a troublemaker who was always trying to stir up some crap among the staff. Now, what happened was that person didn't get any traction because our staff is just so... The, the leadership that we have from Rush, number one, the only person that could fire you was Rush and it would have to meet with his approval. So that person got no traction and that person left. That was really, really early on. And we were all glad to see that person leave, by the way, because that wasn't the way that we operated together. Now, like any other staff, you know, there are turf battles here, and yeah, little incidents of this one being upset with this one about something like that. But none of that stuff bled over into performance and none of that stuff bled over into um, uh, any long lasting anything that would impact the show negatively. And that's because our culture as a workplace was just so different than all of than, than most than anywhere else I had ever worked in my life. Just a very different and positive culture. And you go way back in radio. And when you hear other people talk about radio, and we often talk Coco the, at the website, George, and Rush would refer to me as Coco Jr. This is from way back with the on the TV show, right? The gorilla suit bits that we used to do back then. Right. And he always said it was about ideas. He said, you know, it was ideas, ideas, ideas with Rush. And if you were excellent, hey you got your shot and if you could climb up and that's what i did i came in as a 24 year old 25 year old intern just my hand is fresh out of the schnauzer in the animal er and i said hey i'd like a shot here i'll, I'll work as an intern hey i have a couple of ideas you had the you had the chance to pitch your ideas to rush rush we used to have that that production meeting for tv which is why we very rarely had any meetings for the, for the show right but hey we, he wants you in the meeting there Okay, I mean, I'm just an intern. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna bring me in there to watch news and come up with my Bob Dole ideas, and and then he'd put you on camera, and you'd go bring your idea to life. These are things you didn't get anywhere else. You could text him. These are some of the ideas that I I like to use in my columns. <coughs> Again, uncomfortable making it about about me at all, but I would email Rush an idea, a historical parallel. Rush would take it and run with it. Who else has that? openness most hosts just know it's about me it's about my ideas and he did that for all of us there the whole time we were there he was open and he wanted to he wanted to see you smile see you happy and so giving that's why i have this iphone i'm sure why you have yours as well your house like mine no, is probably full no, of things that he gave no oh, no 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 this one is the first iphone i ever bought for myself since iphones have been out and this is the first <laughs> time because up until then Every other iPhone I had was yeah. from Rush. You know? Yeah. He came in the yeah. first time. He, he sent us all iPhones, and he said, uh, in our office in New York, and he came in and he said, by the way, you, you all have, your phones are not very good. I'm going to send you all new iPhones. Well, the boxes come. It's not just the iPhone. It's the screen producer. It's the Otter box. It's, the, it's an extra charger. It's all of the things you can want. It's a plan, a plan that I still have. I still have an unlimited AT&T plan with this thanks to rush paying for it it's like that those are all things and it's not that's not buying loyalty that's just who he was it didn't matter he didn't say well give it to the republicans on the staff or give it to the conservatives he wanted everybody to have it and to enjoy it right 
And for me, I'll slip in one more story and thanks for encouraging me to do so. I was at a bar one night in the city and it was shortly after 9-11. You had a bunch of young kids there that were wearing shirts that said enemy because George W. Bush had said, you're with us, you're against us. And so it it was that kind of place down in, in the village. And I think it was Mojo's brother, Keith's brother, and he somehow told these people because he was tired of not saying he worked for Rush was Brian. Brian didn't work there anymore. We're trying to speak to some some people, you know. Anyway, and so this guy's there with his wife, and I, I told Rush this story. And you work for Rush Limbaugh, the guy says. And this was a frequent thing. I don't know where it comes from. Well, do you agree with everything he says? said and i said what i just said to you it's not a cult i said i don't agree with everyone everything everyone says i don't agree with everything i say i and this is me leading him in i said you agree with everything your wife says she's standing right next to him he bursts out laughing (laughs) no and he turns like to share the laugh with her and she is not laughing so (laughs) (laughs) i i told rush i said i picked my bass up off the bar said good night left them to their marriage counseling but <laughs> with the idea that people have, and there are liberals. I, I mentioned my friend that worked with Alan Combs for many years. He said, tell Rush, thank you for my job. We're, we're liberals in radio here at the Alan Combs show. He's a liberal host. But thank you for making that viable. Alan had no desire to work under that fairness doctrine under its limitations either. He was a guy who loved radio, and that's what Rush was. And you, you'd listen and that's the thing that bothered a lot of people about Rush to say, why are you listening? I want to be entertained. I want to enjoy it. And if you hear somebody who has a different opinion and they put it out there as a fact, maybe maybe you won't get converted, but at least it'll have you thinking. And that's that ideas part that I said Coco was talking about. We have so many ideas and you don't see that. You, you mentioned the, the left earlier from a lot of conservative radio now. And this is something Rush said later in his life. A lot of people, the dream is, a contributor on Fox News and a book deal. It's not about yeah. ideas for them anymore. It's not about, and they certainly aren't willing to meet somebody on the left and say, hey, let's have a conversation. And as call screener, I'm gonna move on to this question. You really did put everybody at the top of the line. That was your job. And we'd bring somebody in if somebody was leftist and sometimes they would open with an insult. Rush would keep them on the air. It was, it was a fantastic caller like that once. and. Well, you're just going to hang up on me. He said, no, I'm not. He opened with a nasty insult. And the guy ended up saying, well, I don't have the time to sit here and, and talk to you all day. And Rush said, you called me. I want to know why you think these things. And it would just let the guy self-destruct. And another thing, though, an inside baseball thing about that call screening and those experiences, here you're the gatekeeper. But because Rush was so generous, you'd have people calling thinking iPhones were just an Apple sponsorship, calling you just for the phones. So I wanted to ask you that, how did it complicate your life? Not just the positives that he'd give us iPhones, but how did it complicate it that his generosity sometimes could overwhelm you there on the phones when you're just trying to make sure you get the right people on the air that make the host look good? It was an annoyance sometimes. And that was all it was to me was a mild annoyance because I, I figured out systems early. And people might think, I mean, when I run into people and they say, I talk to you on the phone, I call Rush. My first, my first thought is, uh-oh, because so many people <laughs> got so few seconds with me. Because if I said up front, look, Dean, I had a way of, of call screening. 
And it didn't even start out with what's your name, not the usual kind of friendly patter that goes first. My first question is, what do you want to talk about? Because if, if, if that doesn't fly, it doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't, anything else doesn't matter. If what you want to talk about, if you can't articulate that to me in 30 seconds and it makes sense, you are not getting on, period, right? Now, when people would call with this whole, he's giving away iPhones, iPhone, uh -uh, he'll tell you when he wants to, gotta, gotta go. And so it became an annoyance and I would go through those people really quickly. Yeah, I would get calls from people that never even, that didn't even listen to the show. Hey, I heard uh, Rush is giving away um, iPhones. How can I, um, yeah, okay, you heard it. Good luck, listen to the show, goodbye, <laughs> you know. Um, it, so it was an annoyance, but it wasn't overwhelming. My focus was always making sure I had, just like all of us that screened, good callers to get up there and, and just finding great calls is not an easy thing. It, it is certainly not because Rush had his demands when it came to, to what kind of calls he wanted on that air. The prime one was that you could articulate your point of view. There are a lot of people who think they're calling in with something that makes sense and it makes absolutely no sense. So you have to be able to, to screen all that out, but you also have to know when to break every rule and put somebody on that breaks the rules, right? And somebody that maybe wasn't the most articulate one, but, but bring the most entertainment value. Um, there were people like you mentioned this person that was insulting. There were some people that I put on knowing that there could be some fireworks but it's going to be good radio because Rush would be able to either persuade that caller or that caller would be able to self-destruct on the air because they weren't a good listener. So there are all kinds of dynamics that go into it um, that went into the call screening. And it wasn't easy to call screen for Rush's show. It was one of the most difficult challenges of, uh, of any host in radio. Let me just say a word about this because you mentioned this earlier. I've been doing a lot of interviews lately. And at first it kind of, um, Dean, it, it, it kind of st stunned me in a way. I would get these people that would go on effusively about me and, and the show and, and, but they all had the same thing. If it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't be working. And I got that from people behind the scenes that, that are arranging the calls, the producers of these shows, Many times, some of the hosts that I've interviewed with on the shows, flat out, they have their own stories that they share with me about when they started listening to Rush, how important Rush was to them, and how grateful they were to Rush for opening up this industry. In a way, it makes me sad because I wish that I would have been able to relay some of this stuff to Rush when he was alive, to tell him how much deep love there was and respect for him from most of our contemporaries in the industry, because there really is, there's so much of it. You hear it all the time from people. And that was something even when he was diagnosed with cancer. And I've avoided that here because Rush said he didn't want to be the most high profile cancer patient in the country when he was going through his battle. But for me, whether somebody is assassinated, they die tragically, I always like to push that off because I don't want their life defined by that. And for him, he said, this was really great. I had a chance to hear the eulogies. I had a chance for people to tell me how much they meant to me. And that side of it was really good. And I'm thinking, 
I never would have felt like that. That that's such a positive perspective, and that's the thing. He was a really positive guy, and that came across. Who you are comes across so much on the radio. And when he said things like that, he, here we're waiting for him to come on and lift our spirits. And you'd feel you feel guilty. At least I did, saying this guy's fighting for his life. And I'm saying, boy, that was a that was a bad news story over the weekend. And I, I want him to lift my spirits because this COVID's got me down, right? And he'd say, gosh, I, I I expect him to lift me up. We should all be lifting him up. And that that's something that that callers sometimes said too, right? They'd be expecting, oh, you you've got to lift me. Some of them really a little bit crossed the line would say, you can't go yet. Like this is what he meant to people. Yeah, it was profound, but they said that because they trusted him. And Rush engendered that. And look, this is a very important thing you just brought up, Gene. Um, media personalities come and go. And in our business, whether you're on TV, whether you're a print personality, um, like what people very often will gravitate toward is your ideas. With Rush, they didn't just gravitate to his ideas. They gravitated to who he was as a person. And that's why they had such an, uh, a high level of trust for him. They trusted Rush. Number one, they knew that Rush had done the homework. And that if he were going to talk about something and help shape something, that he knew the underpinnings of whatever it, the story was or whatever, because he did the show prep and he could always back up what he was saying or source it. But they also trusted him on a very human level because he shared with his audience when he was vulnerable, as in when he was going through the cancer situation or going through the cochlear implant. He explained in detail what it was like going through his period of deafness. When he did have the problem with um, addiction, he explained why, and he and 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 then he never went into this thing that we see so often in the celebrity class of con continual relapses before they get it right. And I'm not knocking them because sometimes that's what it takes when you're dealing with an addiction more than one or two relapses before you finally latch on to um, to get the help that you need and, and accept it. But Rush also he laid himself out before his audience. He was vulnerable. Now, Dean. Given the, 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 the sentence that Rush had of advanced lung cancer, less than a, a year, and, and if it were me, that would have been it for me. I'd have made the announcement, maybe done one or two shows, said goodbye to my audience, and I'm around the world. I'm doing what I need to do, spending my time with my family. What did Rush do? Every single day of his life following that announcement that he could be on the air, that's where he came. That was his bucket list, uh, Dean. His bucket list was us, the staff, and his audience to be with us as many of the days of his life that he had left. And I think that it's an incredible thing that he would do that. I mean, Rush Limbaugh, let's face facts, Dean. Rush didn't have to put up with half this crap that he put up with. 20 years ago, he had enough money. Um, he was making certainly a, 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 enough money that if he decided to, he could have just invested some and said, I'm, I'm out, see you guys later, I'm done with this. I don't need this grief. I don't need people calling me names. I don't need people lying about who I am. Certainly 10 years ago, he could have done that. And certainly two years ago, when this, when this news came that he was gonna be battling for his life, he could have done the same thing. But through all of it, it was never, Rush would always say, 
when people tell you it's a, not about the money, it's about the money. But for Russ, let me say, it wasn't about the money. The money, I'm sure he appreciated earning and being the, the most successful person. But I think that he demonstrated that it was about the show and it was about his love for his audience. That's what this was about for us. It wasn't about the other stuff. If it was, he could have just, you know, quit and they had a great life or, or had, had a life that was different at the end than he did have. It was always about the show. He was so immensely proud of being the best at what he did. He worked for it. He earned it. And he deserved every single measure of success that he had. For sure. And you certainly deserve every measure of success here with your book. You're enjoying my conversation with James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snerdly. He is the last Snerdly standing. He's also the author of Rush on the Radio, a tribute from his sidekick for 30 years. Remember to visit him at jamesgolden.com or find him on social media at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can also catch him on 77 WABC in New York, 4 to 5 weekday afternoons, and 8 to 10 Saturday mornings. Plus, check out his iHeartRadio series featuring many of the behind-the-scenes people that we've been mentioning today and that you can read about in his book. That's called Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone. Columnist and EIB Network guest host Mark Stein says of Rush on the radio, all kinds of people from Elton John to Donald Trump drift through this story. James is the only man who could tell this tale, and he has done it brilliantly. James, that's really high praise from somebody who certainly himself can sling a phrase. He's also the world's, I think, premier musician for albums for cat songs that he has a couple of those DVDs <laughs> out, right? And that, that, to me, as a cat lover, is, is something that's really big. Those songs are great. But right here in Rush on the Radio, you, you credited yourself with a key distinction. In the subhead, you say sidekick. In the dust jacket, you put producer for the guest hosts, like Mark Stein. Other people will write and call you a producer of the show. And even here with Rush gone, you, you always say, a little uncomfortable with that because Rush had no producers. And for me being on the show, I remember once we did have a guest host on and I could hear you screening calls down there loudly, passionately to all these people when you're screening. And I went in and I gave the host a piece of paper, an article like I would give Rush a million times and said, oh, I think this would be great. And you came out later and you, you put your hand on my shoulder and you said, let me just tell you, these guys aren't Rush, not to take anything away from them, but Rush could get a million things at once. He would get 25,000 emails a day and be scrolling through them and things. For these guys, it's tough. You can't just lay a piece of paper on their desk and say, oh, hey, I think you should do this story. This story would be great. And I, I learned from that moment. And I wanted you to explain that being there. What was it like seeing Rush handle that flood of information? Because unlike a lot of these hosts that go on, and I've spoken to guests who say, I do my homework, and they appreciate it because they say, I'll be sat down on the set, they clip the lav mic on, and they ask me in the last 30 seconds, what's your book about again? And I never do that. Rush certainly never did that. He read voluminously of left and right. So what was that like producing that show? And what do you hope people learn from Rush on the radio to inspire people like you were just talking about who are in the media to learn to do a little bit of that? 
Rush did not have a producer. Rush produced himself. Uh, you're right. I was the producer of the show when we had guest hosts. And by the way, that is a challenge in that every host is different. Every guest host is different. They come to the table with their own work habits, with their own expectations. And your job as the producer is to make sure that the branding of the Rush Limbaugh show is consistent, whether he's on the air or whether they're on the air. And also the audience expectations are met. We know this audience, those of us that have been with Rush. And so the selection of guest hosts was something that was really um, a complicated affair. It didn't happen easily. But once we did have a guest host, then you have to know how they work. There are some guest hosts I could talk to in their ear as I would talk with Rush. While they're saying something, I could say something else and they'd get it. Others, you have to wait to the break because it would interrupt their flow of thought and they would lose themselves. Um, some you have to counsel on their, their, because they're excited to be there and you'd have to um, actually listen to their performance and help them through if they were too rushed because of the adrenaline flow they were, you know, this is the biggest stage in our industry. You have to be cognizant of that. But each of our guest hosts was talented and brought with them talents in their own way. And each are different. I used to explain it, you know, in inside baseball terms, it probably wouldn't make sense to anyone else. Like we have one host, I would say he, I would always call him the surfer. Why? Because he wouldn't spend too much time in the details of a particular news story. He would just kind of surf over the news yeah, this happened. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, this happened. And he was anxious to get to call so he could, you know, pontificate. But it was a great performance. I have others that could spend, as Rush did, if you didn't um, say, hey, we, we got to take a call or two here or there, could spend an hour doing monologues. Okay. There were some that were extremely well prepared. I will tell you, among the most well prepared uh, guest hosts that we've ever had um, are. Mark Stein, of course, who, who just, Mark is, you know, Mark is a unique person. And I don't mean this to any slight to any of the other guest hosts, because we appreciated all of their efforts. As I said, they're all great in their own right. But Mark is something different. Mark is a multimedia performer. Mark could perform on radio and have you in stitches. His insights are unique. He has a critical way of thinking. And then he also ventures into records. Like you said, he can. He has a Christmas album, a cat album. And he's like, whoa, where is this guy coming from? He's, a, he's an old hand TV performer. He, he performs well on TV, likes it, but he is a prolific author. And he does a lot of his own research, which means he travels around the world because he really does have an interesting worldview, not just the United States and, and, being a, um, and coming out of the, uh, the Commonwealth. He has a really different take on, on things than most Americans do. So I always found Mark fascinating. Um, Walter Williams was fascinating. Walter Williams was our least radio guy. I mean, he would he would not get into breaks smoothly. He would get, well, for, for the entire time he guessed us, but our audience loved him because what he brought, brought to the table was a really witty, unique sense of humor that was like Rush, it was highly irreverent. And he used to poke fun at himself, his family. I remember one time his wife's family was livid 
because he would talk about how he sent his wife up on the roof to repair something while he was, and, and, and it was joking. It was hysterically funny, except to the wife's family. Right. Um, <laughs> what was his joke, right? Every Christmas I get my wife a new vacuum cleaner. He would say, right. <laughs> and I had yeah. the pleasure, by the way, of spending time in their house. I met his wife, Connie, numerous times. We were close and Connie was just adorable. And she laughed. They had met when they were teenagers, young teenagers, and had stayed together their entire lives. She died before Walter, but what a beautiful couple. And I don't know if this is a quick aside, but I will never remember this. I mean, forget this. Connie said, I, I asked Connie once what the, the secret was of being married for with Walter for over 50 years and all that. And Connie said that somewhere around their 40th year, they decided to call a truce with each other. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, she said, well, for 40 years, I've been telling this man to pick up his clothes here, to do this and do that. And for 40 years, he's been telling me to do this, this, and the other that continues to annoy him. After that, we just said, you know what? He's never going to change. He's going to do that. I have to accept it. Let's call a truce. And I'm never going to change. And so he called a truce with me. And after that, it's just been smooth sailing. I'm like, wow, that's pretty remarkable. They had a unique marriage. He was a unique guy. Um, and he taught me more about economics than almost anyone else on the planet. Oh, Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. You can still go back and read those columns and get so much out of them. And this is it. When those, when those guys came in, we were welcome in, welcoming them into a family, even when Dawn and Brian first came to New York City when Rush was losing his hearing and you came back. It was an all hands on deck moment that he was going to do this show. Many people don't realize entirely deaf, except for with a little hearing a cochlear implant gives him. And Rush emailed us and I'm not talking. He doesn't have a personal assistant or something. He emailed us and said, I'm sending these two people. I have a transcriber. I have an engineer and take them out. You know, it, it went without saying, send me the bill, right? Take them out, show them a good time. Welcome them to the show. It meant enough to him as he's losing his hearing, you know, he's never going to be able to hear the temptations again. He's never going to be able to hear laughter again or, or anything or and can he do this show? But what was on the top of his mind? Take Brian and Dawn out, show them a good time, welcome them into our family because they're they've agreed to come and try this crazy thing with me that I'm going to try and do this show stone cold death. Because the cochlear implant isn't day one, and it ain't like Jamie Summers where it's better than hearing. It's much, much worse. That That's what he cared about there. I, I want to skip from that to my first moment that I realized I was somewhere special. It was a weird story. It involves you. It was the second time we met, and it's noteworthy because you had forgotten the first time we met. And I was walking into Rush's office. My welcome wasn't the fancy dinner. My welcome was I was going into his office because they sent me down with a paper or something. You see me going in Rush's office and think maybe I snuck in from the TV show audience. Grab me, say, what are you doing here? I think you still remember me. Grab me, throw me up against the wall. Don't try it now. You throw your back out, lifting me up. But here's this young Ernest Elba, big strapping guy. You <laughs> throw me. Who are you? What are you doing here? Oh, I have a piece of paper from upstairs from Dick, our, our senior producer or whatever it was. And that's when I realized, I talked about you being, being willing to throw down. You had such loyalty for the man. And I wonder if for you, you remember the time that you realized 
this is not just some host. I mean, we've worked for multiple people. There's not a lot of people you'd say, I'm going to, I'm going to jump somebody for, I want to protect them with my body. This is like secret service kind of thing that you did back in the day. So what was that moment when you look back that you said, man, this, this guy's, this guy's not just a boss. He's not a host, a short-term job, but my, my heart feels a connection to him. He is like a brother to me. What a good guy. Do you remember what that exact moment was for you? No, Dean, I don't. The only thing I know is that um, it didn't take me long. Um, you know, before the show started, before I worked on the show, I had developed a friendly relationship with Rush. Um, after the show started and I was rotated on his show, um, well, I just describe it as a click. We clicked immediately. We clicked. We had a very similar love of radio. We had a love of politics. We had a love of history. We had a love of music. We had a love of so many things in common. And all I know is that um, somewhere in that first year, I realized I really love this man. This man is just, he's really, it, it goes beyond what you feel for most, you know, most of the relations you have. It's something that's different. It is kind of, um, it's, it's, you develop a love for a person and just continues to grow. And that's the way it was with, uh, with me and rush. It is, um, there was no one moment. I just love the guy, you know, and, and I'd do anything I could for him, you know, ever because he was, and, but by the way, rush would do anything he could for me too. So, and always knew that. And so it was, uh, it was just a, you know, it was just the mutual love that we had for each other, you know? You know, one of the things I think that, and that's what's missing a lot in all of this, people don't understand this. That's our, our staff, our whole staff. We loved, we loved Rush. He wasn't just our boss. He wasn't just the guy that we got because we were able to work on his show, that we were able to feed our families or do everything else that we were able to do as employees. We actually loved the man because he was a unique individual. He was, um, he to me, as I said, not only in politics, the second founding father, second generation founding father, because that's where he was about his love for this country. But for us, it was a lot more personal than that. He knew his staff, he loved his staff, he trusted his staff, and we felt the same about him. We sure did, and it gives me an, an opening here. I was looking back at photos for this, the video version of this interview on YouTube and Rumble, and I found these pictures from one of the rare people that did leave and left with Rush's blessing, Tracy, who you remember, our graphic artist. And Rush comes to the party there in the back room at Kennedy's on 57th Street, which was a great old place. And we used to go there often. Actually, Carol O'Connor used to go there. A lot of, a lot of famous people would go through. The morning after, by the way, he told us none of you had good cameras, so I'm sending you all new cameras because, again, that's just how he was, you know, very Howard Cosell way to compliment people, right, or give give people things, a little insult first and teasing. But he said to Tracy as she was leaving, because Tracy, again, we're speaking about people who aren't part of the political movement. Tracy came there, was a very liberal girl, had a, had the ring in the nose, had, had the tattoos, had whatever you think of a, of a stereotypical person that's on the left. If you're a conservative, you would think this with Tracy. Didn't matter. She wanted to do the job. She was good at the job. And she decided to leave. She was going to go work with children. Rush says to her at the party, you're going out into the world now. You know, if some people are going to see 
my name on your resume and they're not going to give you a chance. So here he goes to the cake and I have photos of this that I'm going to roll for people never before seen photos. He hands her the knife and he says, hold it up to my throat and we'll take some pictures. And then if anybody gives you a hard time, you work for Rush Limbaugh, you could say, no, 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 I tried to kill him. Now, <laughs> and you could show them the pictures. And you could see in the pictures that Tracy's not really happy at having to hold a knife to Rush's throat because she loved him. But I thought of that and I said, you know, there's moments that I would not want my wife holding a knife to my throat, much less somebody on my staff that could be a crazy well, how person. funny is that? <laughs> but then that that is just one example. I'm glad that you, you prompted me what you said, because the people he chose to spend time with when he could have spent time with anyone. I know Al Michaels tells a story and says he said to me and Chris Collinsworth, come over and he was he was out with Catherine and we noticed a ring on her finger. It's like he just proposed and he's, he wants to hang out with us. And at his wedding, Catherine and Rush could have had anybody there that they wanted. And they invited us. And it meant so much to us because that's how we felt about him. He could have given my seat to any number of people who wanted to seek some political favor in the media on the conservative side, certainly. And also, you know, James Carville is there. He could have said, oh, I don't want that guy there. Keep him out of there. You know, it's like everybody was part of that family. And that's something you tell here in Rush on the radio. And I, I just love that because you would want to hang out with this guy and you'd be surprised if you thought that, oh, hey, I believed everything in the media. This guy's supposed to hate me and he doesn't. The true visit to Afghanistan, same thing. People would come up and say, you know, I'm a Democrat. And he would say, I, I don't care. I'm here to thank you for your service. You can be whatever you want. I want to thank you. I'm corkscrewing in here so I don't get shot down, not to visit Republicans, but to visit everybody here and to just say yeah. thank you. Yeah, those are all great, great things from from our boss. We were so fortunate. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things, again, that I hope, Dean, I'm waiting for your book next and waiting for some <laughs> other people's books. No, seriously, I think that we all need to do this. I think all of us, well, you're doing it in your way. You have a show and all that. But I think all of us that knew Rush and love Rush, we have an obligation to tell our story and to get it out here and make sure that when the haters have their chance to speak, that at least there's going to be something to counter what they're saying from people who actually listened to Rush's show, who actually knew who Rush was as a human being and had interaction interaction with him, and who stayed with him for decades and who loved the man dearly and miss him every day. Well, we certainly do miss him. And I hope that people will pick up Rush on the radio, listen there's people in there, as Mark Stein said, that you may not even have heard of or thought of. Rush called us for that meeting. We never had meetings. There was that terrible moment. He tells us that his, he's looking down this death sentence. He apologizes to us. And we all said, I know you shouted it out. We were just on the conference call in New York. No, why, why are you apologizing to us? Because he knew that, that we would miss him. We would never have a job quite that great again and how much we loved him. And so this is the story you get here in Rush on the Radio from James Golden. James, thank you so much for keeping his legacy alive. I'm happy to tell many more stories if you ever want to ask them of me. And I'm happy that people out there will say, hey, this guy has done this show for all of these years. I never knew one way or the other where he worked necessarily. I hope that in some small way, people will, will give Rush a chance, give Rush's book a chance here in Rush on the radio, 
listen to James's book, read James's book, listen to his show, because he sat on the other side of glass from greatness for 30 years and loved every minute of it, despite those times you may have been suspended from call screening because Rush, Rush thought you were a little rough on callers. So the best of luck with the book, with your show, and I really hope that we get the chance to talk again about another book that you do about Rush or just any time. Email me, call me. I'm happy to, to back up anything I can as you continue promoting Rush on the radio. Thank you, Dean. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, and one other show, we'll go back and we'll look at some of these books on your shelf in the background and see which one <laughs> should be banned. I see all the white supremacist books out there. Yeah, Not that one. No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I see Southern okay. Sun. I see Vicksburg. I'm looking for the <laughs> Robert E. Lee book. Yeah, yeah. I'm on the trail to see, uh, yeah, what is this white supremacist literature <laughs> in the back of this man? It's Greek supremacist because, as any Greek will tell you, we are the best. We give the word democracy. We are, what have you say this white, the white people, they swing from trees before the Greeks give them democracy. We give them food. We give them all good things. That's why I wrote the cookbook. I love it. Thank you, D. Thank you, James. From the bottom of my all heart. Right, have a great later, day. Buddy. All right, Bye-bye. you too. Bye. Again, the book is Rush on the Radio, a tribute from his sidekick for 30 years. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to James Golden for joining us and for introducing us to the real man behind decades of headlines, behind great charitable works that benefited everybody, regardless of their political beliefs. For a man who is not only a best-selling nonfiction author, but also an author of children's books, the Rush Revere series, Time Travel Adventures with Extraordinary Americans. He was also, of course, number one in radio, and he caused a revolution there. As I like to tell people who ask me what Rush was really like, if you heard him on the radio, you already met him. No shtick, no pretense, fundamentally just a kid who loved radio. Remember to catch James on 77 WABC in New York. That's at 4 to 5 p.m. weekdays. And you can find him there, too, at 8 to 10 a.m. Saturday mornings. Also, all of those are on his podcast at his website, jamesgolden.com. You can find him on iHeartRadio as well. That's for his series about our boss, Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the Golden EIB microphone. That website is jamesgolden.com. And you can also find him at Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, where you can find me as well. Plus, please do remember to check out my pieces in the Washington Times and my YouTube and Rumble channels. That's the place you can subscribe, either one, to enjoy future conversations. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of James Golden, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh.
Unión. 